Welcome to the podcast by Pleasant Valley, where we talk about biblical truth, address your questions, and seek to help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast by Pleasant Valley. I'm your host, Caleb Eisler. And for this week's podcast, we're going to listen in to the recent Encounter Celebration panel. It was moderated by Pastor Merle Meese and had participants such as Andy Lee, Dr. Al Bean, and myself. And it was a chance for us to wrestle through some of the big questions of the Christian faith. We asked all of the encounter attendees to write in with some of the toughest questions about Christianity and about the scriptures that they are wrestling through. And we took an opportunity to wrestle with those questions together and try to provide some helpful answers uh, as a way to close out the course. If you haven't heard of Encounter before, it is a 12-week Bible overview going through each genre of Scripture and trying to help attendees get a grasp on the storyline of Scripture so they can better apply the Bible to their own life. It was a great chance to close out the courses. We wrestled with big questions the whole time. We thought it was a great way to close out by wrestling with big questions through this panel. Uh, we received far more questions than we could have possibly addressed So there were many more we couldn't get to, but we thought it was a fun way to close out the course and uh, pray that you would be encouraged, you'd be sharpened, and it would encourage you to wrestle with the scriptures more deeply. If you're interested in taking Encounter in the future, like 250 people already have, be sure to sign up for Encounter next semester and in ongoing semesters after that. With that being said, and without further ado, let's dive into this discussion for the panel. So we have had the benefit of having uh, somebody who loves the Lord, who loves the church, and obviously loves the scripture and teaching the scripture to guide us over these past 12 weeks. And so would you join me in a big round of applause here and online for Andy. Thank you, Andy. I remember one of our first conversations as we talked about what it was that uh, Andy loved and what he'd like to do in terms of exercising his gifts in the life of our church. And he talked about a similar kind of class that he had taught at other places. And it was like, well, that's exactly what we would love to uh, love to do here. And I want to thank all of you uh, both here in the worship center, as well as those of you who are online for submitting the questions. Uh, We're going to do our best to work through all that we can. But let me remind you of something that Andy said. Um, These guys are not going to give definitive answers. What they're going to do is they're going to show you what it's like when Christians read the scripture and they grapple with coming up uh, with answers that um, make sense to them. And some of their answers may not necessarily agree with one another. And so what we hope that you will see is this is what it's like when Christians who love Jesus who seek to uh, be responsive to uh, the Holy Spirit and they do their study can maybe disagree on some various things, but it's not like we're at war with each other or we have a faith that is opposite of each other. It's just maybe some differences of opinion. And what I hope that you will discover more than anything is that um, sometimes the best thing that you can do with the reading of the Bible is ask questions and ask questions and ask questions. And then sometimes put yourself in a position after you've asked questions to allow God to ask you questions based on what it is that you have read. And so with all that being said, they've got uh, a number of questions that they know about. What they don't know about is that in my pocket here, I have a 
red card that has a question that I'm going to ask them. Are you excited about that question? <laughs> Are you guys excited about the question? Just want to keep you on edge. So here we go. Uh, and let's focus, first of all, just a couple of questions related to uh, the great book of Revelation. What encouragement and wisdom would you have for us as we think about the book of Revelation? Any wisdom beyond what Andy has laid out in the class so far? I think one thing that'd be helpful to think through, and Andy's mentioned this in different ways, is just the idea of not missing the forest for the trees. And sometimes we can focus on the details so much that we miss the big picture of victory. Um, I think another helpful reminder would be as we read through, remembering that there is a way that we can have some historical pride as we read the book. And every single generation has thought they were the last generation. And at some level, we're meant to live that way. I think Revelation does not give us the exact date of when Jesus returns for a reason, because we need to live with a sense of urgency to share the gospel, to strive for holiness, to seek after God. But every single generation has thought certain things were signs of the end times. And we should be at look, you know, we should look out for those things, but also remember that uh, every other generation has been wrong and we might be wrong as well. So we need to be careful of over interpreting every single thing that happens in the news while still being cognizant that at any moment Jesus could return. And I think we can hold those things in tension pretty well. Let me, let me pick up on what you said, Caleb, because I certainly agree with it. And one of the things we're always tempted to do when we pick up the book of Revelation is somehow lay it on the table in front of us, pick up the newspaper or turn on the news and begin to try to correlate what we find in Scripture with what's going on in the world today. And since we seldom really understand very much about what's going on in the world today, it's no wonder we get confused. But if we are willing to take, as we've heard tonight, and as Caleb just mentioned, if we're willing to take the message of Revelation, then we'll find that applicable in every generation, whether we think this is the last one or whether the world will last another thousand years. Another, another thing we're always tempted to do because we've seen so much of it is there's a temptation to somehow take the book of Revelation and make it fit with the other apocalyptic material that we find in the Old Testament and New Testament. Somehow we want to put, a, put together an integrated chronology that will take us from the Old Testament period until the day that Jesus returns. Uh, actually, as Andy indicated tonight, Revelation is not necessarily chronological. Sometimes God is saying, all right, I want you to learn this message. And then once you think you've learned that and lived that, we'll try this message. They overlap. Sometimes it's the same one taught in different ways. So there's a couple of things we want to avoid. That is trying to make the book of Revelation fit today's events or vice versa. Or trying to, trying to develop on our own a system by which we can understand all of God's great plan for history. Okay. Revelation obviously is a tough book, and sometimes people focus on the hardest parts, and that's what they get kind of enamored with. But for you personally, what would you say is a favorite part of the book of Revelation, and why? I think definitely for me, one would be in Revelation 5. Um, even though I've read the book of Revelation so many times and you know what's going to happen, there is something about reading the tension of who is going to be worthy to open the scroll. And just this beautiful image of 
almost someone weeping that, that they think the end is lost, there is going to be no victory, and then out of nowhere comes this lion and lamb um, that is going to bring victory. He's worthy to open the scroll. And for me, there's just this glorious moment there that um, it's almost just like this king coming up about to claim victory. And so just for me, that, that just always rouses my heart to worship. I have to say my favorite portion, my favorite verse from the book of Revelation is Revelation eleven, fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were those vo loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I'm looking forward to shouting on that day when it is evident it's already true, but when it is evident for all eternity that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So that means my favorite portion of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters. I see how it all turns out. Mm -hmm. However I turn out, I know how God turns out. I know what he's going to do. So when I read the book of Revelation from, Genesis, from Revelation chapter 1 to 22, People ask me, what's the message of Revelation? God's going to win. God's going to win. However, whenever, God's going to win. I, I was just listening to it again today. And um, chapter 21, verse 9, said, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, he then carried me away in the spirit to a high, great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. And it goes on and describes it again. We tend to get caught up in the details, but I was thinking, this is the time that God's people finally look like God's people. And um, all of our messed up things, William Cowper uh, in... Uh, there is a fountain where he says, when, when this poor lisping, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then with a sweeter, noble song, I'll sing thy power to save. And I just think when, when God sets it all right and when his church looks in reality the way he has always seen us, that it, it just, it gave me goosebumps today just, just thinking about that. I, I used to think I didn't want to live through the events of Revelation. And then the more and more I'm reading, the more I'm like, I want to be there. I want to see that. I want to I shout with you. So let's transition a little bit. Um, we've talked about this some, and for those of you who don't know, uh, our staff had the privilege of having Andy teach us every Tuesday for 12 weeks. And so... Uh, uh, Andy committed an awful lot of time, not just to all of you on uh, Monday nights, but also to, uh, to our staff as well. So talk a little bit more about the boundaries, uh, what the boundaries are uh, for how text of scriptures can and cannot apply to our lives. What are the boundaries? <laughs> um, I think... It's easier sometimes, I think, to think in terms of what the way can't apply. Um, and I think the more specific we take, especially with the promises in, in, in the Old Testament, you know, like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to conquer this, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this merger because 
Joshua conquered Jericho. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, if you stop to think about it. But that we, we use it, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means whatever we want it to mean. I can pass my Hebrew test I didn't study for, right? Or whatever. But, but when, we, when we really understand the context of Scripture, then we begin to understand that I can't specifically claim victory over any, anything. I, I, this thing might kill me. This, I can't say I'm going to defeat cancer because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The cancer might get me, but that doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. And, and I think as, as we think in terms of boundaries of what they can and can't mean, I think we disappoint ourselves because we overload God's promises, or we misread them, or we read things that aren't promises as, as promises. But if we, if we take a step back and we look through Scripture and we say, God has always been with his people. God has rarely, if ever, done what God's people wanted him to do. It almost never works out the way people want him to. And in fact, a lot of the way God does things are just downright foolish in our thinking. So, so you have a global catastrophe and babble and all of this stuff, and you show up to some random guy and say, hey, come follow me. And that's your solution to the world's problems. You need a king, so you go out and find some shepherd and say, hey, I'm going to make you the king. Or you decide to entrust your, your son to lower middle class people who can't even stay at a Holiday Inn. Like, it, nothing makes sense. But that's how God works. And God, God's people can always have confidence in, in God and, and what he does. And I think sometimes we, we, we are too specific and we over, we over interpret, I think, and, and we over personalize scripture. So that's kind of my thing. I'm really curious as to what, what you guys would have to say, though, because this has been my class. So I've said everything I wanted to say. I want to hear what you guys think. One of the things that we do when we begin, begin to look at God's, uh, God's promises to us and texts of Scripture that we want to apply to our lives, we sometimes forget the very lessons in hermeneutics that, that Andy's been working with now for 12 weeks or so. We forget that we cannot simply dip into the Bible and choose a spot that we like or, or it sounds good to us or that seems to apply. I, I liked your example of Joshua because I know when I was in student work for several years and, and people would come in, they read the book of, book of Joshua where God promised wherever you put your foot, I'm going to give you that land, you can claim it for me. And they go out and they wander all over campus. They wandered around in faith, but somehow they did not understand that that might not be exactly what God wanted to do in terms of the campus where they were. So sometimes if we would begin to follow the, the common sense and the important steps in how to interpret the scripture, the kind of material we're dealing with, the genre that you've heard so much about, or the context, the historical and book context, the literary context, and listen to, listen to the content, make sure we understand what's being said, and then we can see if that applies consistently throughout Scripture, then we're getting the right message, and we can begin to connect that to our daily lives. But along the way, remember that God's horizon is infinity. God's horizon is from before there was anything as far into eternity as we can imagine. 
And so when God makes promises, and I, I like the fact that uh, Andy brought up the word promises because for a long time that bothered me. I'd read these promises in the Old Testament. I'd read these statements about God. This, this will never happen, or I'm going to do this for you. And then I knew something about the history of God's people and the history of the church in the, since the time of Christ. And then they helped me understand that God has multiple horizons. Uh, we've learned, yeah, I think, in, in this material to, to look at the context in which it was written, the audience to whom it was written. That's not the only context. Sometimes we jump forward to the New Testament. Oh, there's another context. The Son of God has came into the world revealing God as he'd never been revealed before. Oh, that's not the only context. Now there's a context in Revelation. And who knows how far that context is in front of us. God is going to keep his promises. He's going to keep his promises in his day and in his way. Yeah, I, I would just add one thing for me is the boundary of not taking a descriptive passage and making it prescriptive, mm -hmm. yeah. which we have a tendency to do if we read a narrative and we go, it's describing something that took place. Well, the exact same thing must take place here, you know. Paul got bit by a serpent and didn't die, so I'm going to go handle some snakes. Does that mean every good pastor has to go to jail? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, just checking. That's true, yes. I've been to jail. I've driven by, I've visited folks there. So, okay, let's move on. When you look at books like Job or Esther, Ruth, Nehemiah, that are narratives about an individual, you've got a primary person who is the, the main character, what's the best way to approach that if you are leading the Bible study. So this is a good question for folks who lead others in Bible study. What's the best approach in, in dealing with a book that has a lot of narrative about an individual? Best approach if you're leading a Bible study, and then how can you apply what happened in their lives to our lives? I think this, this isn't a complete answer, um, and Andy and Dr. Bean have much more to say, but at least part of it, again, not abandoning hermeneutical principles, and so remembering that context matters, and so even some of these stories, there's gonna be context that just don't apply to us, um, and remembering where you're at in the story of scripture, so you think about the idea of, um, you think of like a river, so you're at a certain point in a river, it's been coming from somewhere and it's going to somewhere, and so we have to remember where we're at in the story, but. I think there are situations in these stories where we can find situations in our life where we are in a similar mindset, we're trying to work through similar decisions, we are tested in faith, and we can apply in those situations, but we have to be careful we don't over-apply promises in a way that weren't intended. And uh, again, I think it's just holding fast to the hermeneutical principles that we've talked about all 12 weeks and that Andy has taught us, so. I'm always amazed when people will pick a particularly an Old Testament character, and choose the two or three incidents in which he appears in which God speaks to him and uses him for God's glory. And then we ignore the fact that this person might be 110 years old, and yet we're looking at three or four moments in time when God spoke to him and used him, and somehow we think we know enough then to know what he was really like. I think in many ways, because we tend to start with the, with the human aspect 
and then wander upwards. I think this is, can be a very dangerous thing to do. Abraham was a man of faith, and he lied like a shag rug. <laughs> so let's see, it's okay if I have faith, and when I, can, I can lie about my wife being my half-sister, okay? Is that all right? No, that's not all right. So we catch ourselves actually forcing a particular uh, model on someone like Nehemiah or someone like Job or someone like Abraham or Moses. When in fact, the question we need to ask is, how did God deal with them? How did God use them? What are the lessons that God taught through their lives? Rather than trying to imitate their lives because they live in such a different world, we, say we serve the same God, we listen to the same God as Isaiah or as Paul or as Peter or as Moses. Listen to the lessons that God is teaching through them, and then we can apply those to 2020. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, it, it's funny how when, when we have those list of things, we, we don't list uh, like Jeremiah or you know, people who's had, had it, it's always the people who conquered and administered. And I was thinking about that, that Hebrews 11 passage where there are others like that were sawn in two, which probably was a reference to I, Isaiah. Um, and we're very willing to read ourselves into the story when things are good. We're very unwilling to read ourselves into the story when to the people who aren't good and what we do is we end up essentially just moralizing everything where it's like well be like this person don't be like this person and and the goal always tends to be to you know give me victory and comfort and and like you said it's not about that person it's about god and what god was doing and though when you think about those books and you're teaching through nehemiah or or, or esther the question is what is God saying? Why did God want this book included in Scripture? So instead of looking at, at the individuals and the people, we're looking at the message of the book. And what is, what is being said here? Um, and I think it's, it's an explorer, I think, where, where the, the two, what, is, what does this teach us about God and what does this teach us about man? Those are good questions to ask, even though they're, they're very general, but they're still good because you're, we're focusing on the scripture and on what God is doing in that scripture, as opposed to focusing on, well, which character am I most like and how will that tell me what I should do with my life? Um, which none of us, we're not that, we're not those people. Well, let me push on this a little bit because if God is the hero of the story, which we would say is true, so if I'm studying the life of Peter, and I know that ultimately Jesus is the hero, and I know that I can't make Peter into somehow a superhero because he obviously has a lot of flaws, how do I draw from his life and his example? What would be, how, how do I go, okay, I see how Peter dealt with things where he was maybe brash at some moments, at other moments, he was really humbled by the Lord. When I look at an individual's life, what would be some ways that I could walk away with, let's say, principles on either how to 
live, how to face temptation, whatever it is. I think one helpful thing would be some, sometimes the, the best way we can learn from people is looking at their mistakes and seeing how there's so many times in Peter's life where he has all this gusto, but he's missing what God is doing. And thinking about one lesson in our own lives is how many times do we have lots of gusto, an idea of how something should be, but we miss the fact of what God is actually doing. And in many ways, we can fall into mistakes and despair just like Peter while missing that God is actually doing something right in our midst. And so uh, Andy Stanley always has this quote that says, you'll never run out of material if you preach from your mistakes. And uh, so I think that's just something for us to watch how people respond. And just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean we're supposed to follow that example. We can actually learn from the way people handle things incorrectly and the way even Jesus responds to Peter. Right, now this I, is... Okay. With Peter, the, in thinking back to talking through Acts, one of, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and it said that they, they saw their courage and they saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men and they took note that they'd been with Jesus. And I think the distinction in our lives may not be, we're, we may not have character or personality like Peter or John or you know, these other people, but people should take note that we've been with Jesus. And we don't get to be with him in a physical way like Peter did, but we encounter Jesus through studying his word, and, and that transforms us. And I think if, if nothing more could be said about our lives than other people see Jesus in us, and if you carry that away, that that's what Peter was concerned about um, through his mistakes, through every good and bad, they wanted to represent Jesus. And if, if that's the, if we, we take that away, that we want to represent Jesus, I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's interesting what we do with some of these characters as we read, especially the Gospels, and we think of the disciples. These dudes are doofus. How, how doofus can you be? How come, why don't they get it? And we realize, oh, well, we're on this side of the resurrection. What would it be like to have been them and struggled with, here is a guy who came from a common family who is mm -hmm. doing these things. So, all right, let's go to one that's really more of kind of a, a general opinion question. Um, why, do you, why do you think uh, there are a number of Christians who are biblically illiterate in an age where we have so much information and technology accessible to us. I mean, there's more information now about the Bible than has ever been in human history. And yet, Barna would say there is a great deal of biblical illiteracy in the church. I think one of the problems is competition. We've got this, uh, this terrible access to anything we want to look at or listen to. We've got things that taste good intellectually, feel good spiritually. And yet when it, when it comes time to really buckle down and get serious about God's word, then in one, sometimes we have too much. We don't know how to wade through it. Sometimes we don't have enough. 
We don't know who to trust. So something like encounter here has helped, is intended to help us begin to sift through the material that comes to us technologically, electronically, be able to sift through that and begin to, to discover for ourselves, this is what I believe. This is what is in the word of God and I see it in the word of God and I read it here and I hear it here. And so this is where I can begin to gain some confidence. I know one thing I'll hear a lot is that people will say, I'm just not a reader. You know, that I know there are some people that really enjoy to read, but that's just not me. And so that's why I struggle. But I think if we're honest, so let's take a poll. Raise your hand if you've looked at social media at any point today. Raise your hand. If you've looked at social media, you are a reader. We, we will scroll through endlessly through social media and read through post after post. So we're all readers. We just choose what we read. And what we read impacts our attention span and impacts our view of the world. And so for me, I, for example, uh, when the election was happening and we're trying to figure out the results, I would scroll through Twitter and just try to get news updates and that would change my mood in the day. Whereas if I was turning to scripture, I would have a very different view of what was going on. There'd be less doom and disaster and much more peace. And so I, I think for many of us, one of the reasons we struggle with biblical illiteracy is because just like you said, Dr. Bean, there's so much competition for our attention, but we're all readers um, and we choose what we read. And so for many of us, it's a chance to say, what do I need to do? Maybe it's before I ever look at my phone in the morning, I'm gonna look at my Bible and do a quiet time first. But I think that would help a lot of us. And I think to jump off of what you just said, we, we accept passivity in our lives. And if we are passive, someone will fill something for us. I mean, how many is it? It's your curated newsfeed for the day, your curated <laughs> playlist, specially tailored to you. You don't even have to think about what songs you want to listen to. They will put them there for you. No one's going to put scripture in front of us, and especially not context-driven, big chunk of scripture reading. We have to reject passivity in our lives, and we have to accept the responsibility of saying, I am going to do what it takes to study God's word. I'm going to carve out the time. I am going to put my phone down. And, and if, we, if we let everything passively happen to us, we're never going to get to it because my, my grandma once told me, she said, God is a gentleman. God does not cram things down our throats where the world is very willing to cram everything down our throats. And God is very content to say, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Mm -hmm. And I think part of our problem is we're, we're passive in the things we seek, and we need to be more active in, in seeking that because our biblical literacy will not increase unless we, we reject passivity in our lives. So let me transition to a way that we could go about studying Scripture. Uh, how important is the study of the original languages to the average Christian? And so along with that, I know the answer to this, but one of you can give the answer. What would have been the original languages that scripture would have been written in or communicated in? Um, as someone that just took a Hebrew exam like 30 minutes before this started, uh, I would love to hear uh, Andy and Dr. Bean's answer on this. 
Well, to be honest, uh, we, don't want, we want to be transparent. We talked about this before the meeting this evening. And uh, the, first, the first question that I ask about the question is, what do you mean by the original languages in terms of using them? I think it's, it's very important that we going back to what's available to us technologically uh, on the internet or wherever, it's important to us to be able to use the tools that are based upon the original languages, original languages being Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Portions of the Old Testament are in Aramaic, New Testament is in Greek, generally speaking the Old Testament is in Hebrew. And there are, are wonderful tools out there, some in print, some online, that if we knew something as basic as the alphabet, the Greek alphabet, or the Hebrew alphabet, we could begin to look up these that are printed in English. We don't have to know Hebrew to read the article. We just have to know how to find the word and go from there. But the other side, if, by, if we talk about the importance of original languages for you to learn them and study them, I think any one of us on the platform right now would say it's going to take more years perhaps than you want to invest to learn the original languages. There are scholars, godly scholars, who are skilled in, in working with our translations and working with our understanding of the, of the linguistic nature which Greek being very much like English in some ways, Hebrew being very, very different in, in most ways from the language we speak. So yes, he, original languages are important to use as a tool, but you don't have to sell your soul to a seminary or to a college and decide you, you've got to learn Hebrew to be a good Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And I think it's, um, I think it was Alexander Pope who made the statement, a little learning is a dangerous thing. And um, if, if you are interested in, in that sort of thing, in, in learning the languages, it, it, is, it can be very, very enriching. Um, I think I described one time, I think it's the, the I remember when, when, TV, when high definition TV first came out. And you know, when I was a little kid, I saw some TV shows in black and white and then moved to color. And it was like, whoa, it's totally different. Lucy has red hair. <laughs> But then when you go from like high, regular TV to high definition, you could tell a difference. But now it's like 4K. I mean, I can't, I can't even tell the difference sometimes. And I think sometimes with the, with the original languages, you're, you're talking from like 95 to 99%, where there's, there's a little bit more. And, and it's not the, the biggest misconception of the original languages. And I remember I used to say this before I, I studied the, the original languages. I'm sure the Greek clears this up. Right, we all thought like it was just a moment you uncovered the mystery of Greek and Hebrew, then all would be revealed. And the truth is that's that's not the case. I think it it helps to clarify why there are um, divergences in in theology, or why when your when your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when it says well it could mean this word or it could mean this word, and in English they'd mean nothing alike, but in Hebrew it's just a pronunciation difference between these two. And then you're like, oh, I see why this is the way it is. Is it worth going to four years of seminary to say, oh, I see why that footnote is there? Pro <laughs> probably not. But I, I will say, I remember there was a, an acquaintance of mine um, years ago who, who did um, 
came to believe, he was, he was a pastor, and he came to believe that, that um, there was no such thing as hell. And he was doing this, you know, all, and he did it all based on Strong's word studies and, and things. And I remember even then, and I had not studied the original languages, but I remember thinking to myself, if you're going to make claims that you understand something that earth-shattering in theology, you better know the original languages really well. I think that's, you know, if, if you're going to, we, we're not just going to willy-nilly make these claims about, oh, well, this or that. You need to know the original languages, and you need to know them well if you're going to be doing that kind of, of um, heresy in that, in that case. But, but I, I think that's where it, it really is. Are you called to do high-level theological study? Then it can be beneficial um, for the average Christian no, it's it is a, it is a big investment to to learn the the languages. I think just as someone that's just starting the journey of learning languages, if anything, it's just giving me confidence in our English translations that we have teams of scholars who have put in all the work, and you really can trust your English translation. It's not like just like you guys said, it's not like the moment you learn the original languages that all of a sudden every every door opens up, but that your English Bible is really 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 good, and you can trust that. Okay, um, I'm going to move to one that will be more specific, and probably Dr. Bean will let you uh, answer this one. Can we get more details on the 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period? Uh, I, have to, I have to tell you the book that I always recommend. It's a book by a man named William Marty, who was a Christian teacher for years and has written several books. He has a book called The World of Jesus. It's the best simply read, simply written for the average person to read that covers the period from Malachi to Matthew. He does a good job of, the, of explaining the history and the people like the Maccabees and people like the Hellenists and how the, how the Romans came to be in Palestine when Judah was born. How did they get there? When did they come? And so on. And he also begins to open the door to the fact that in, that, in those 400 years, silent years we called them, there were tremendous changes in the Jewish nation in some measure in their theology, certainly in their sociology. Somebody asked the question about the development of synagogues. We can't really place the, the beginning of the synagogue. It may have gone back as far as the exile, which is, which is sixth century, but it also may be as late as just a century or less before Jesus was born. And so there are things that are available to us, however, and that's a, just a great little book that I want to I don't get any royalties or anything for that, but I want to push that. If you want to know about that period, mm -hmm. the world of Jesus, where did the Pharisees come from? Where did the Sadducees come from? Why are they so sad? <laughs> so I'm going to, we've got, we've got about 17 minutes left here. Is that true? We, we're going to end. So I'm going to say we've got 15 minutes left. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you just a couple of questions. And some of the questions that you ask, all of these really good questions, some of them are real specific about a theological uh, matter. And so it really becomes a matter of interpretation. How do you do good interpretation? 
And some of these are going to have, obviously, major uh, differences in theological camps. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to uh, a couple of them, and then I'm going to ask you the question that's on my red card here that you don't know anything about. Um, does God change his mind? There are a few verses in Scripture that seem to suggest he does. Does he actually change his mind? Would you accept yes and no? <laughs> and here we're going to talk about original languages. There's a Hebrew language that's pronounced Naham. And it can mean a change in feelings. It can mean a turn. It, it, does not, it never means repent. It can mean a change in feelings. It can be a change in thinking. The word is used about 35 times or so in the Old Testament. 30 of those times, it refers to God as the subject. Some translations will say God changed his feelings. Some will say he repented. Some of the old King James, I think, uses the word repent. And some will say he changed his mind. However, if we turn to Numbers 23, 19, it says God is not a man that he should nacham, that he should change, that he should repent, that he should change his mind. So how can it be that the Old Testament uses the word so often to describe God's activities, and yet God can turn around and say he is not a man, therefore he's not going to act like a man in changing his mind? The, the text on, changing, on God changing his mind actually point to three things. Number one, they point to his compassion. When he sees the suffering that sin brings upon humankind, and when he, when he sees and feels the grief because he feels what sin is doing to us, God has compassion. And what he planned to do, what he had in mind to do, he's willing on our basis to begin to do the same thing in a somewhat different fashion. It also shows God's commitment his commitment to covenant keeping and covenant revelation. He is committed to accomplishing his purpose through his people in his ways until the end of the age. The third thing it shows is God's freedom. None of us will stand before God and say, why did you do that? How could you do that? That doesn't fit my understanding about God. We won't do that. We'll be too busy, we'll be on our face before God, worshiping and loving and thanking him for his salvation. But we must give God the opportunity to relate to us in ways that we can understand. I, I understand that since God knows the future and God knows the past and God is aware of the present as well, I know it's easy for us to ask, well, since he knew he was going to do this, why did he do it here? Because God relates to us in ways that we can passionately understand. He gave us emotions, the kinds of emotions then that he can use to describe his relationship with us. So we give God that quality of compassion. It says that God is merciful. Another word for the, another translation for the word merciful is compassionate. He's compassionate as a mother cares for her children. But he's also committed to accomplishing his will and he's God, he's free. I think, kind of going off your answer, um, 
one of the things we have to remember in passages like that is that when you are dealing with passages that um, we are trying to reconcile a human perspective and a divine perspective. And those two things are really hard for finite human beings like you and me to understand. We, we, are, we just cannot fathom the mind of God. And so in, in a similar way, like you might talk to a child, you are gonna talk to them in a way that is far less technical and is very relatable because you're trying to make a point to them in a way that you may not talk to an expert in the field in the same way. And I think if you think about the scriptures, uh, Calvin will talk about this idea that God is like babbling or cooing like he's talking to a baby. Because again, we can't fathom the mind of God. And so you're gonna run up against times in the scripture just to your point where the point is not that God is changing his mind, um, but that rather God's trying to make a point about his compassion and that he's relating to his people. Um, if you wanted to, to get more philosophical with it, there's a, this is hitting on the technical term is immutability. So all that means is that God does not change. And that may sound really philosophical up in the clouds, but here's why that is important. A God that can change is not the God that we believe in. Because if God can change, it means he can get better or worse. And that's not the God we believe in. We believe in a God who is perfect, has always been perfect, and will always be perfect. And so as we're wrestling through big questions like that, we have to remember that we are coming at this from a human perspective and God is coming from a divine perspective. And it, those are hard things to communicate to people that can't fathom the mind of God. So we can remember James 1:17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this is just a good reminder that we are dealing with divine mysteries that we can't fully fathom. And if we could understand everything about God, we wouldn't be relating to God. It would be an idol of our own making. So, Okay. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pull out my trump card. And you'll notice that there's actually nothing written on this card. <laughs> so here's the question. What is your favorite book of the Bible, and why? Now, I understand that that's kind of like saying, who is your favorite child? Because, uh, and every parent has one. Just checking to see if you're still out there, okay? So, what is your favorite book of the Bible, and why? It's easy for me. I've been asked the question before. It's the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, I, was, I first discovered it really uh, when there was a, a lot of political uh, turmoil in our nation. And as I began to study Jeremiah, I came up with some questions. Who speaks for God? And there was Jeremiah. Questions that were very practical. And the further I got into it, the more I became aware of Jeremiah's heart and Jeremiah's passion. And he was... He was the kind of man who could say, yes, God, I will do that. And then when people walk on his head, he says, God, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then he does it again as well. So his openness, the openness of his heart. He, I think in the book of Jeremiah, we find more of the heart of a prophet, the heart of a man of God, than any place else in the Old Testament anyway. Yeah. And so Jeremiah is my... My favorite. I think definitely for me it would be the book of Hebrews. Um, 
in part because Hebrews does an incredible job of exalting Jesus, but also there's so much of the Old Testament in Hebrews that it really does bring together all of the scriptures. And uh, probably my favorite passage in all of the Bible is the very opening words of Hebrews. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And I, could, I think I could just spend the rest of my life reading that, and it would bring me to worship. So. I'm glad you showed that that card was blank because we couldn't pre-do our answers because my favorite book in the Bible is Jeremiah. <laughs> um, when I think it was when I was a freshman in high school, um, getting ready to go to school, uh, I went to a, a, a Christian school and my dad gave me a new Bible. And in that Bible, he wrote in there um, these, these verses from Jeremiah. Um, and, and he, he just was encouraging me to be willing to stand for the Lord um, no matter what. And um, he said, it was these verses, therefore this is what the Lord says, if you return, I will take you back, you will stand in my presence. And if you speak noble words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. It is they who must return to you, you must not return to them. Then I will make you a fortified wall of bronze to this people. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you to save you and rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will rescue you from the power of evil people and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. And his message to me entering as a, as a freshman in high school basically was, don't let the people control how you think. And in the book of Jeremiah, he's constantly pressured to tell the people what they want to hear. Um, <laughs> and at the very, and it's, it's, it's such a sad book. I mean, it's so heartbreaking because at the end of the book, the people are like, we promise we'll listen to you. Tell us what God says. We've seen Jerusalem destroyed. We'll listen to you. And Jeremiah says, okay, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you what God says. God says you need to submit to the Babylonians. God didn't say that to you. We're going to Egypt. And it's just like, Oh, and they take him with him. Yeah. And Jeremiah probably dies in Egypt. And like you said, the, a, a heart of someone who was willing to stand for the Lord, his life didn't end well. He was one of those others in, in Hebrews 11. And there are times in my life where I would never claim or hope to be like Jeremiah. There are a lot of times where I feel like that. I feel like I stand for the Lord. I do the right thing things don't work out, and I whine to the Lord, and I hear that verse in Jeremiah says, if you run with men and fall down, what are you going to do when you have to run with horses? And it's like, oh, I, Dad, why didn't you give me some better verses? <laughs> <laughs> but it's been so meaningful to me through the course of my life. Don't turn to the people because I am with you. And I think you see that, that message time and again in Jeremiah that even when things are bad, trust the Lord. You're not going to like it. You're not going to like being my spokesman. It's not fun. It's not always good. 
serving the Lord is not for the faint of heart. And, and it's just in, in some way, maybe it's because misery loves company. Um, it's been a, a, an encouraging book to me in, in my spiritual journey. Awesome. What's your favorite book? Um, mine would be Ephesians. Uh, memorized Ephesians and Galatians uh, back in college with a Greek professor. And uh, I hadn't been a Christian for very long. And just everything about what it says about what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And then uh, talking about the church and talking about human relationships, I just uh, I find it to be so enriching. And probably I love the prayers that Paul prays in Ephesians. And then uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this prayer as our way of concluding our time together. But let me just say this. Um, congratulations to you for uh, spending 12 weeks of your life getting a better overview of what the Bible is all about. And I want to I want to commend families for coming. Mm-hmm. I want to commend the students that are here from elementary, middle school, high school, college, and beyond. And uh, our dream and our passion is uh, I'd love to see Pleasant Valley not only being biblically literate, but biblically passionate. Mm-hmm so that we will be biblically obedient. Mm -hmm. And never that we would know more of the scripture so that we would be puffed up and arrogant so that we can shoot people down with our uh, biblical knowledge, but so that it would cause us to worship God with greater deal of abandonment. And it would help us be able to give an answer for the reason of the hope that we have to anyone who asks us, but to do it with gentleness and to do it with respect Mm -hmm. so that others could come to know this God who has been chasing us and will continue to pursue us all of our life. So that being said, um, let's pray. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints What is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the podcast by Pleasant Valley. If you want to hear more from us, you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, pleasantvalley.org. God bless.